It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. First, we will be out of the EU, free to chart our own course as a sovereign nation, taking back control of our money, our laws, our borders and our trade. We are ready to move to the next phase in our relationship. We want our future relationship to be as close as possible in full respect of our principles. We don't yet know what sort of a Brexit we'll get. We don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure. And five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Hello, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, uh, Seb, it is now the 27th, so the UK ends its 45-year relationship with the European Union this week. It's been a blast, hasn't it? (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Brexit negotiations uh, will be led by a task force Europe team from the Prime Minister's own office at Number 10 Downing Street. I'm talking about the next stage, of course, the next... 11 months or so, 10 months or so, of uh, UK-EU trade negotiations. Yeah, that's the tricky bit. So we've got a bit of detail on this from James Slack, who's the Prime Minister's spokesperson. We've got about 40 people there, headed up by the UK lean negotiator David Frost. Tim Barrow, who's the current envoy to the EU, is going to stick in that role and then become ambassador. So it's a, a symbolic change there. But then as we put that behind us and go to the next phase of EU talks, there are some big decisions at home that Boris Johnson has to make. No, of course, because this is also the week that we're expecting these critical infrastructure decisions that could actually shape the premiership uh, for Boris Johnson and also shape the UK for years to come. So the first, of course, is the role of China's Huawei technologies and 5G wireless broadband networks. The government seems poised to allow the tech firm some role, but what will that mean for the transatlantic relationship, intelligence sharing and the trade deal with America? Yeah, and of course that goes against the position that lots of the Five Eyes uh, security partnership have gone, the likes of Australia, New Zealand, the US, so potentially setting up a clash there. We'll dig into that in a minute. And then the second one is HS2, the high-speed 2 ultra-fast rail link from London to the north of England. Uh, Those costs, of course, have spiralled. We've seen lots of press reports about the uh, £100 billion plus price tag this could now garner. Uh, And the spokesperson, James Slack, of the Prime Minister there, saying that this is a, a consideration that is ongoing, but we are expecting some sort of decision soon. No, and this could be huge. So let's bring in Bloomberg's telecoms and media reporter Thomas Seale and also Bloomberg Westminster's own Ewan Potts to discuss you know, what could be some massive decisions. Uh, we'll welcome to you, Thomas. Look, first of all, I just want to talk about uh, you know this idea of alternatives. Um, the Prime Minister has pro- promised this high-speed internet access for even the parts of the UK, you know, where it's hard to, to reach. So he's made that promise to the public. Are there alternatives in terms of which bit of technology we actually stump up the cash for? 
Yes, so when it comes to Huawei and alternatives to Huawei, um, they're really very, very, very limited. Um, there's really only two in Europe, and it's Ericsson and Nokia. Uh, so if you take Huawei out of the market, like uh, Donald Trump might like Boris to do, they have a lot of power to put prices up. They might not have the capacity to build that much extra. So it's, it's a bit of a dilemma for him, and he's made it a political pledge to roll out fast internet to the country. So Ewan, let's bring you into this. We've heard about this pledge to bring out all of this amazing new next generation internet technology. But then isn't this a little bit reckless because these issues that could come about as a result of this implementation could happen further down the line when Boris Johnson and his cohort aren't in Downing Street anymore? Yeah, I think the government is keen on this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, as we've just heard, cost uh, and competition. The costs of not using Huawei could run into uh, billions of pounds. The, the, the telecoms operators are very keen that Huawei uh, is given a role. Bloomberg understands that uh, the costs could uh, be billions of pounds for not having them uh, take part. As you say, they're only Nokia and Ericsson, the other uh, two players. But it's really a key political pledge from Boris Johnson, uh, levelling up the country and delivering 5G and fast broadband to parts of the country which don't have it. Now, delivering it uh, is very tricky already, even including uh, Huawei, which is the market leader. Uh, but as you say, this uh, is a very uh, long-term issue. It depends whether you have a government of four years or, or eight years, uh, whether this gets uh, resolved uh, in time. But it's uh, very tricky with the US breathing down Boris Johnson's uh, mm. uh, neck not to uh, include Huawei here. But the government uh, really wants to get started on this. No, absolutely. Thomas, and that's where I ask the question, A, you know, the accusation is that Huawei is offering cheaper technology because of government subsidies. And then and actually, is there a way of um, kind of being able to please all sides from Mr. Johnson's perspective? Is there a way of keeping Huawei separate from, you know, perhaps the critical part of the 5G network? I don't understand the tech, but I know you do. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but it seems that there's a, a big distinction the government wants to make between core and non-core. And uh, they've been leaning towards for a long time, leaving Huawei out of the core all the networks already do this. There's only a bit of Huawei in the core of EE, which was bought by BT a few years ago, if you remember. Uh, and they're taking that out now. So there will be no Huawei in the core anyway. That won't be a big change if that's made official this week. However, if it's taken out of the non-core, that's actually more of the network. That's all of the masts and antennas you see on buildings around London and Manchester. And that's where the big price tag of billions of extra capex from companies would, would come from. Um, in terms of satisfying everyone at once, it, it's a total dilemma for Boris because the Americans say that taking it out of non taking it out of the core is not enough. Mm. You can't have it at all. They're faced with a different situation in their own country where they've never had Huawei. We've got to build on top of a legacy of Huawei. They've been here for fifteen years. So it would be a rip and replace here, whereas they've got a sort of a greenfield operation. And Australia and some others are saying that the distinction between core and non-core isn't clear enough. Is that the case for the UK? This is an ongoing debate and it's, it's really interesting because as you move to 5G, the, the computing power of networks moves closer to the edge, so-called. And maybe you have lots of what could be considered cores all over the country and you increase the attack vectors or the attack sites, as the, as the spooks and, and techies have been telling me. So... Um, yeah, that's an ongoing debate. Uh, the networks um, believe that the distinction is still valid and that they can keep it secure. And so do all the British securities forces. So it's um, it's, an, it's a live debate still. OK, attack vectors, right. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> meanwhile, of course, um, Ewan, this 
potentially could impact on the UK-US trade deal, uh, you know, and, and that's uh, also absolutely crucial, really, in Boris Johnson's future plans. Yeah, of course, uh, you know, the UK is moving into a very tricky period negotiating between the world's uh, biggest single market and the world's biggest economy. And one of the things that we have to offer, one of the things that Britain does very well uh, is security. We are a trusted partner when it comes to security, obviously part of the Five Eyes uh, the Five Eyes set up. Uh, and undermining that is a big a big risk for the UK. So Boris Johnson will be uh, also keen uh, not to, to be seen to be undermining our trustworthiness mm. uh, when it comes to security, but also at the same time trying to d- deliver on that pledge. An interesting tweet from the uh, chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. He says that sovereignty means control of data as much as land. Uh, and we need to decide what we're willing to invest in and who we're willing to share our tech with. Uh, that was actually uh, retweeted by the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who's mm. also been uh, pushing uh, the UK hard uh, not to allow uh, Huawei uh, to get involved with the 5G network. So tricky there. Thomas, I've got to throw another possible halfway house solution at you. The FT reporting that the government could allow limited access and then they're looking at a possible cap on market share. Is that something they could run with? That's something we've been picking up on as well. Um, at the moment, Huawei could be very dominant in certain cities or certain parts of the network. And so if you cut that down, um, then that's a possible you know, solution to being over-reliant on Huawei. That would still not please the Americans, of course. They want a total ban. But, um, but that seems to be the way the government is leaning and, and what a lot of officials have talked about. Resilience. So if one goes down, one network goes down, another one is still up. And, and pricing competition, all these considerations have been considered at once. Yeah. Mm, okay. I, have, I, have, I have heard it said that this is just the Americans being protectionist. This is just Trump trying to uh, look after his own tech players. But of course, uh, the US is not really involved with network equipment, as we heard. They're mostly uh, European companies. So I think the Americans do have real genuine concerns about uh, Huawei. The company itself, of course, it says it, there is no way that their stuff will be used for spying. Huawei says they're a reliable partner. But uh, the US uh, clearly uh, doesn't really quite believe them. No, exactly. Look, let's also talk about HS2 uh, in all of this. You um, and this is a story that you've um, you know kept a really close eye on. I mean, the big question, and everybody's asking it: Is it really the infrastructure that the North needs? You know, if you had a hundred billion quid, would you really spend it on this? Is it going to bring the benefits? But we're expecting uh, some kind of decision. It looks like it's finally coming uh, this week. It's been, been coming for a long time. There's been lots of reviews. It's not quite Heathrow levels, but it's certainly been uh, a long time coming. Yeah, £106 billion project. Stephen Barclay, uh, the Brexit Secretary, uh, was asked, his gut feeling was that this would be approved. Uh, and he said, yes, I wonder how that's gone down uh, in number 10, perhaps uh, shedding a bit of light on what we're going to see. They've been trying to keep uh, very tight-lipped about this. Is it the infrastructure that the country needs? Well, that's a very, very tricky issue. Uh, Many people have spent a lot of time uh, looking into this. Uh, Clearly, uh, we have a problem with capacity on our railways. The West Coast Main Line is a very, very busy railway line, the busiest railway line uh, in the country. Uh, Whether this will help with levelling up the north, I think, is a key question. That's what the government keeps saying it wants to do. If you speak to a lot of northern commuters coming into Leeds and into Manchester, their trains are pretty ropey. There's a real lack of capacity there. And HS2 is not going to help with with that. Uh, Ewan, just how big an impact is this going to have on capacity? You mentioned it a couple of times. And I feel like this is the thing that people are overlooking because we get very excited by super fast trains, new routes. But this is the issue that Britain is facing more and more, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating, actually, because when we first started talking about HS2 uh, 10 or 15 years ago, it was all about speed. We need to catch up with the French and with the Japanese. We needed a nice, new, fast uh, railway line. 
But actually, uh, as the arguments for that started to wane, we then started talking about capacity. This only came in uh, more recently. Uh, and you do wonder sometimes perhaps if this is uh, perhaps being used to justify uh, sort of retrospectively. But certainly uh, our railways are very busy. The number of the amount of uh, traffic on Britain's railways has increased uh, enormously over the last 10 to 15 years, unlike uh, in lots of other countries. Uh, and there is a capacity issue, particularly on that mainline route uh, to Birmingham and to Manchester and to Glasgow. And of course, uh, getting to those uh, northern cities and to Scotland will take a very, very uh, long time. We're looking uh, well into the uh, 2030s. And of course, a lot of people won't be able to afford to travel on this because it will be a premium product. We're not saying we're going to be selling lots of cheap tickets to go on HS2. It will be a very expensive railway. You know it's going to be expensive to build, expensive to run the trains, and it will also consume a lot of energy. It won't necessarily be in a particularly green railway. It will use a, a lot of fuel. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's also have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Yeah, Vince Cable writing for Bloomberg Opinion today. He's the former business secretary, of course, Liberal Democrat leader and an economist once upon a time saying that Boris Johnson's goal of doubling UK growth is a promise that he can't keep. Uh, and he goes into this saying that the argument goes that a crackdown on immigration, potentially weak demand, high household debt is all going to make this very difficult. And he also points out there's very little to scope to cut interest rates. Of course, they're very low. Uh, and then the stimulus is going to have to come from a planned fiscal boost, all the money that Boris Johnson is promising to spend. Uh, so Cable's saying that the Prime Minister is hoping for a near miraculous productivity spurt. He says that has to be the source of this. But it's difficult to see, he argues, where it's going to come from. Yeah, and that, of course, is on the Bloomberg terminal. So a really great opinion piece uh, from Vince Cable. Also, this caught our eye and many others. Um, on the BBC, Varadkar, Leo Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, saying that the EU will have a stronger team in trade talks with the UK. Critics would say, well, he would say Talking that, sharp. wouldn't he? But on the other hand, uh, he's pointing out what some of our own reporting on the Bloomberg has pointed out, that, that the EU is going to be at an advantage due to its larger population it's larger market and in Bluebird reporting we've uh, you know uh, had discussions with some people who've been on the opposite side of the EU table in negotiations and what they report back is is you know very very tough negotiators everything is put on the table by the EU and they really push their opposition side until the pips squeak. And it's amazing for a political bloc that can't agree with itself so much of the time. <laughs> they've really come together in this one. Well, but perhaps sometimes that's used as an excuse that the diverging national interests within the EU, mm. you know, that is actually often used perhaps by negotiators as a way of extracting more from the other side. Yeah. And then it'll be from Britain to learn from the mistakes from the first round as we go into this next exactly. stage. And then we've got the latest on the Labour leadership contest. Keir Starmer calling for a radical redistribution of wealth and opportunity and an end to the monopoly of power, as he calls it in Westminster. The Labour leadership candidate today saying that the status quo is not working and power should be put into the hands of the people. Um, you've got Sir Keir and Lisa Nandy now securing places on the final members ballot. Rebecca Longbailey and Emily Thornbury also vying for nominations. Uh, and he returns to his campaign, of course, following a week's break. His mother-in-law was involved in a very serious accident, so we had to put it on pause for a bit. Yeah, indeed. OK, so that's the latest on the Labour leadership. Uh, now, let's 
Let's get to this report. More than one in 19 deaths in UK towns and cities can be linked to air pollution. That's according to the Centre for Cities. Its research also shows that you are 25 times more likely to die from long-term exposure to dirty air than to be killed in a car crash. For more, I'm pleased to say that we have Paul Swinney, who is the Director of Policy and Research at the Centre for Cities. Paul, it's really good to see you. It's absolutely alarming to read your report. What does it show about uh, cities in the UK and just how bad pollution has become? Well, it's quite interesting, I think, when we think about climate change, and there's a lot of discussion about that, quite rightly, uh, and we see that there are a number of local authorities that have declared climate change emergencies, that something that they have a much greater control over, which is local pollution, you know, things that, you know, you're talking about varying from street to street, there's much less action on that. But our figures show that you know, it's killing people. And I think we tend to ignore it because it's a little bit inconvenient, because a lot of it is caused by, by road transport, and we use our cars quite a lot. Trying to separate ourselves from that is difficult, but we see that there are fumes coming out of the back of those exhausts. And not only is that killing people, but actually it's affecting health of a much broader number of people too, ranging from older people through the dementia, etc., through to younger people and the um, and lungs of, of uh, children being stunted in terms of their growth as a result of this. So it tells us a lot about the, the urban nature of, of air pollution and how that varies across the country as well. So you're from the Centre for Cities. You spend a lot of time looking at local approaches to these problems. Who's doing it well? Who's doing it badly? Well, London definitely sets the gold standard on this. Um, it has to because it has the highest percentage of deaths of, of any city in the UK. And that's partly because it's a big place and a very dense place. But we see that um, about 6.4% of all deaths in 2017 were a result of, of air pollution or related to air pollution. That's 4,000 people dying as a, as a result of breathing in the air that we the air around us, a dirty air around us. Um, so but they've put in things like, um, first it was the T-charge, the toxicity charge. That's now evolved into the ultra-low emissions um, zone, which is came in last year in central London to, to price expensive Car, sorry, uh, polluting cars, highly polluting cars, and that will expand out to a much broader area next year too. But other areas are doing something too. Glasgow has a zone in place, which is going to be expanded next year, which is a good thing. And Birmingham making all the right noises on these sorts of things. And a couple of other places are starting to introduce um, some zones. But the key thing about this actually is not the places that haven't reduced uh, some zones or other measures, which is great, but actually is that a lot of places haven't really introduced anything, despite quite big pushes from government in recent years. So what I'm really interested here is the knock-on effect of this, and perhaps the less positive ones, because if you extend the ultra-low emissions zone to the M25, which I believe is, is in the world, works uh, then you hit a lot of small high streets around the sort of the edges of London and Birmingham there's some talk of going car free as well what does that do to these high streets that aren't faring that well as it is well there's definitely a, you've got to take the positives and negatives in, in any argument um, and clearly if we're going to limit the amount of time or the how people can get around in terms of their cars there may well be a short-term knock-on effect but the way to balance this is to say you know going back to the London start is like 4,000 people almost within one year. And that's a lower bound estimate, by the way. That's just one pollutant we're looking at rather than the sort of the broader basket that caused air pollution are dying. And so we've got to put that in place. Of course, we need to offset, um, offset that with, say, trying to support the high street or, say, putting a scrappage scheme in place for people who are driving polluting cars. But London, in fairness, has already put that scrappage scheme in place. Uh- 
So explain to me why the UK has been so bad also in terms of actually achieving the already existing air quality standards from the EU, the World Health Organization and others, despite all the court measures that have been taken. The UK has kind of really failed quite badly on that front. Yeah, this month marks the 10th anniversary of us failing to hit our targets in terms of nitrogen dioxide. And yet, you know, think of all the people who've died from air pollution as a, um, over that 10-year period. It's quite shocking when you, when you put it in those terms. And I think part of the reason why this is the case is that um, uh, there wasn't anything particularly binding on it until Climate Earth um, brought a, a sorry, Climate Earth brought a, an action against the, the UK case, government. Yeah. Um, since then, the government has then said, OK, well, we need local areas to be taking action. Some have taken action. Quite a few of them have actually dragged their feet on this because for the local, for local authorities, it isn't actually, again, anything binding where they're going to be hurt by this. I, I suppose the flip side of this, though, um, is, you know, I hear diesel car drivers up and down the country saying, well, listen, the government policy just a few years ago was encouraging me to buy this car. And now we have, you know, a swift turnaround that diesel vehicles are bad. Obviously, we've had diesel gate in the meantime. Um, but it is quite difficult really when uh, you know money we've had austerity for nine years and not that much money has gone into infrastructure uh, you know to improve that people are reliant on their vehicles and that is the key problem and I think if we try and make a moral argument about um, how cars and it's not just cars, I must stress, but mm. how cars produce a lot of pollution and we need to move away from cars, that's just not going to cut it because people are too reliant on their, their cars for a whole range of different reasons. So some of the response is going to have to be improved public transport, but even that in itself is not going to help. You know, you've got to be thinking about then planning policy, about how you're making sure that you're concentrating jobs and amenities in the centres of places so it's actually easy to facilitate public transport in the first place. There'll be some places that are so reliant on the cars that we're not going to see a change in the short term. This is a much longer... Um, interventions that are needed. But then what I was really interested to read in your report, it's not all about cars. Mm. I cite from your report, 42% of NO2 emissions caused by road transport, 50% of PM2.5 particle emissions from domestic sources, the likes of wood and coal burning stoves. How do we legislate for that? Well, this is the really interesting element because in some ways, well, we are reliant on our cars for a number of different reasons and that's quite hard to change. In terms of the, the burning of, of domestic fuels, a lot of that has come about because of, say, the rise of wood-burning stoves, which look lovely in, in designer houses, or the rise of, say, fire pits in the garden, and you can sit there with a glass of rosé over a summer evening and, and watch the sunset, and it's all very nice. Is that really true? That is what is making it's, up it's, half of it's, the pollution it's, in it's, cities? It's, it's things like that that are then contributing, because the types of fuels that are used to burn, those, uh, to burn within those sorts of things are really, really polluting. And so there's an element here of lifestyle choice, which is pushing up pollutions, particularly in cities in the in the south of England, which is a real challenge. Are you at all hopeful that this Johnson administration will be different from the last and actually uh, try to push forwards some changes and try to reduce air pollution in key cities? I think there are a number of reasons to be hopeful. I think the first one is that there is an environment bill that is due to go through the, uh, the relevant procedures this year, of which there are a number of steps in there that are to be welcomed. Um, there are also a number of places that are locally taking action in terms of looking to introduce more of these clean air zones, so London-style low emissions area. Um, they vary in terms of their quality. Um, some places like Birmingham will charge for cars, for private car use, and we welcome that. Other places sort of duck it a little bit and say, well, we'll charge taxis and lorries, but we couldn't possibly sort of charge the private motorist, which is ridiculous given that that's the biggest contribution. And then one or two other places said, well, we'll do a zone, but we're not going to charge at all. And it's like, 
Well, to be honest, if you're not going to start putting a price on this, you're not really going to, you're back to moral arguments and it's just not going to cut it. But then what's interesting is that unusually, this is an area where the north is really doing quite well and the south is falling behind. Well, certainly this is what we see in terms of difference across the country is the south-north divide, which is quite different to whenever we usually do an interview where we talk about north-south divide and, and the north sort of lagging behind. It's very much the other way around this time. Some of our most economically prosperous places in the southeast are really plagued by this air pollution problem. What is worth saying on that, though, however, is that even though, say, Scottish cities in particular perform really well and have very low levels of pollution relative to the rest of the country, um, people still are dying from air pollution in these places. Mm. So while it's low and it looks good relative to the rest of the country, there is still a problem there. It's just not to the same extent as what we see further south. Yeah, of course. And there has been a response to a report from the Department for Environment uh, saying that the government is stepping up the pace and taking urgent action to improve air quality. They say that uh, the government's investing £3.5 billion to tackle air pollution from transportation. Uh, but a really uh, interesting, very worrying uh, air pollution report. So thank you so much, for joining us today. That's Paul Swinney uh, from the Centre for Cities. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.